So last week I began talking about what's known as the five hindrances in our meditation practice. And I primarily talked about the first and sort of primary hindrance of the force of the wanting mind, desire, grasping, clinging, and all of that uh, domain. And today I'll hopefully cover the last four. We'll see how far we get. Um, I particularly want to talk about the opposite pole of grasping, which is the force of aversion, which is also a force in the, in the human mind that pretty much drives uh, a lot of our world, a lot of our behavior, a lot of, uh, a lot of what we see in our culture, in the world. Um, it seems like we're living in um, politically challenging times, maybe every time that we live is politically challenging, but it seems at this point in time, um, given the, the awareness that we have of what's happening in world events, post 9-1-1, etc., um, we can see the force of, or the consequences of this force of aversion, the force of hatred, the, first, the force of ill will, the force of anger, the force of acting out without wisdom. We can see it today in what happened with 9-11, with the hatred back and forth, east and west, uh, the intolerance, the racism, racism in our own country, the racism in South Africa, uh, and what's happening in Palestine, incredible degree of hatred, violence, intolerance, what's happening in Afghanistan, <coughs> what's happening around the war, how much of the war, the war effort being fueled not only by greed, but also by aversion, hatred, racism. It seems like, I was reflecting on this this morning, it seems like uh, this force of aversion or hatred is something that's somewhat been uniquely developed by humans. Like aversion is clearly there in the animal realm. A cat doesn't like to be sitting out in the rain. It prefers to be by the fire. But there's not the same, I don't get the same sense of hatred in, in, in the animal realm that I see in the human realm. You know, it's like we've really developed that to a fine degree. In the history of civilization, and you read something like um, The History of the World by H.G. Wells, it's really a chronicle of war. You know, you know, since agrarian cultures have been around the past five, ten thousand years, um, has come with it also the development of war and hatred, violence, oppression. You know, every empire has created a lot of violence and death and destruction. Uh, a lot of religion has caused a lot of hatred and violence. The witch burnings, colonialism. Uh, we had quite a history of humans in the last century, the world wars, the Nazi empire, the exterminations. There's a lot of history we have in our genetic makeup of uh, war and violence and hatred. And it really starts with this seed in our own mind of um, 
from a Buddhist perspective, it starts from very simple not liking the experience of the unpleasant. We have an unpleasant, something arises, some experience that we experience as unpleasant, has an unpleasant feeling tone. Like we get up in the morning, the fog's in, it's cold, we feel somewhat contracted. There's a quality of aversion there usually. We put the heater on to bring about a, you know, a, an e- a sense of ease. Very subtle, very small, very minor. We have a zillion moments a day where we feel a subtle experience, a subtle feeling tone of unpleasantness. And more often than not, there's a subtle experience of resisting, not wanting, not liking, aversion. Usually pretty mild, usually not a big thing. Um, when that experience of unpleasantness is, gets stronger, somebody cuts us off on the freeway, somebody yells at, yells at us at home, um, the raccoons have you know, been in our garbage the night before, whatever it is, the level of aversion grows, doesn't it? Somebody attacks us, yells at us, cuts us off on the freeway. It's a very strong feeling of unpleasantness that we react to. I used to go to, I used to be a big soccer fan in England when I was a kid. And um, England has, a, has its own kind of strain of violence that I don't see here. There's a sort of a, um, the, 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 uh, an everyday kind of male violence is, is, a, is seemingly much higher in, in, in England and Europe. Um, and it would be quite acceptable for the uh, home team to go and have a big fight and brawl with the opposing team's fans every week. It's just like, <coughs> what happened? You know? After the game, whether you won, whether you lost, who cares? We'll go and beat the other guys up. Uh, you know, football in some, in some way is a way that that, that sort of aggression is channeled uh, and sometimes not, sometimes stimulated. One of the most frightening things I picked up in the media, which I like to do, um, is a toy that was developed in the year 2000 by McFarlane Toys, whom you should all boycott for producing such a horrible product. Um, they made a product of, uh, it's called um, Marvin, Death Row Marvin. It's a guy sitting in a death row chair, um, and you buy the toy, you press his button, and it gives him electric shock. And Marvin, through clenched teeth, utters, that's the best you can do, you pansies. Fortunately, there was such an outcry, surprise, surprise, it was produced in Texas. <laughs> Biggest, highest um, uh, death penalty uh, executions state. Um, one of the ads said, pretend it's your boss. And they produced, they sold tens of thousands. You know, so we've not only institutionalized hatred and violence, but we've also made it into a kind of a a game. You know, in a way, most of the um, you know, the Nintendo toy games, you know, they're all violent. It's all about shooting, killing, maiming your opponents. You know, it's like we instill it in our culture, in our, in, our, in our children.
I was thinking of the, I've been on several demonstrations recently protesting about the, the war buildup in Iraq. And um, I see how uh, easy it is. It's like the, the, the force of aversion is so endemic that um, we often oppose things that really are the expression of hatred, like a war. War is really an expression of hatred in many ways. And yet we can protest that, that war uh, with the same kind of aversion and hatred. Um, it's kind of the irony of the, you know, an anti-war movement, anti-nuclear movement, anti-racism movement, is we can be cultivating the same quality of aversion, polarization, separation, us and them, hatred, um, that is the very cause of the thing we're protesting. So it's a very uh, complex uh, dynamic, this issue of aversion, and how we work with aversion. And so it, it, for me, it brings to mind the issue of um, how we distinguish between aversion and right action, how we work with aversion. Because some people might say, well, um, if I didn't, you know, a, lo- a lot of activists I work with and talk to will say, well, if I didn't have this anger, if I didn't have this vehemence and sense of righteousness, I wouldn't have the fuel to do my work. It's a common statement in anybody in a progressive movement or an activist movement. And from a Buddhist perspective, we're saying something different, that actually that, to have that as the fuel for our work, which is really the seed, it's really a, the anger is a seed of hatred, or an expression of hatred, um, ultimately is an unskillful motivation that leads to burnout, leads to separation, is in some ways part of the problem, not the solution. And so uh, it's, the challenge is how do, we f- how do we live in a world where there's lots of things going on that we strongly oppose, war, violence, racism, abuse, etc. How we oppose that with strength and force and clarity, uh, what in Buddhism we would call right action. How do we work skillfully against those forces and yet not become part of the same energy that's creating the problem in the first place? Often I think, given that we, ha- we live in a culture of information overload with the media and the awareness of all the things that are happening in the planet that are somewhat uh, destructive, violent, war, famine, etc. It's endless, the catalog of suffering. Um, often, because of the overwhelm, we meet that information, instead of with compassion, with a, with with a sense of aversion, we shut down, or we numb out, or we get angry. You know, in some ways, anger is the quickest way to respond to something that um, allows us not to feel the pain of it. You know, so we're sitting watching TV, the news comes on, we hear about the latest famine in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, how easy it is to respond with anger and frustration because it's actually too painful to let in the reality that we're letting millions of people die of starvation when we have abundant food supplies. So notice that. Notice how easy it is to move to the resistant response 
rather than to let the information in. And I'm not saying you let in every piece of information and feel the pain of it, because obviously we have our limitations, and uh, you know our heart can only take in what it can take in. In some ways, you could say that the anger, which is also an appropriate response sometimes, is somewhat a defensive mechanism that allows us to function. Because if we did allow all of the suffering in at once, we could quite easily dissolve in overwhelm. That's why I think we need to be very discriminating with what we let in uh, through the media. It's so easy to be overloaded and then become somewhat dysfunctional in our in our ability to act. Some days we just get out of the wrong side of the bed and everything uh, stimulates our aversion. You know that feeling? You get up, you're either tired, you're grumpy, your back's hurting, something. And we have these expressions like, it'll be the death of me, or those kids will be the death of me, or my parents will be the death of me. As if, you know, as if everything outside of us is the problem. If only they would go away, we would be happy. You know, it's interesting to notice the cultural expressions we have that reinforce, you know, the sort of delusion of aversion, the delusion that the outside world is the problem. So when we meet unpleasant experience, if we're not mindful, that's really the key, if we're not mindful, then the habitual response, just like if you're watching, you watch those biology programs of unicellular organisms, kind of all bobbing around in in a sort of fluid, and one cell meets something that's hostile, and the cell recoils, contracts, moves away. Um, you know, we just because we have a few more cells in us, a few trillion more cells. But we do the same thing. We meet something. You see a barking dog. It's cold. Somebody cuts you off on the freeway. We have that same cellular response: recoiling, contracting, uh, avoiding, escaping. Um, if we're bigger than the thing, then it can stimulate. You know, we either run from it or we fight it. So we get aggressive, we get angry, we get annoyed, we push away, we resist. There's some clash. If we're very skillful um, in our meditation practice, we can learn to bypass it. We can learn to do a skillful spiritual shuffle and sort of move around it. Uh, I'll talk a little more about that later. I once heard on the radio, a friend, actually a friend heard this story on the radio. Um, somebody in, in, the, in the South, I think it was in Dallas, something like that, um, there was a report that somebody in a law office got up one day, took a gun out of his bag, and shot his computer six times. He was so frustrated with it. And my friend thought there'd be a sort of huge wave of sympathy across the country if this was <laughs> this news would broadcast. Since if you're anything like me, you find computers quite frustrating. 
actually got arrested and was jailed for whatever. I'm surprised more computers don't fall out of windows and onto pavements. I'm not sure if I told this story of when I was in India. Tell me if I told this story last week. I was in India and um, I study a lot at this this monastery in Bodhgaya where the Buddha awakened in a Thai Thai monastery where we have 20-day retreats. Um, And as over the years, Bodhgaya has become more popular because Buddhism has gotten more popular around the world. So the village has grown to more of a small town. And each year, the, the monastery, which used to be in the country, is now surrounded by restaurants and cafes and coffee shops and all kinds of things. And in India, the, the tradition is when you have a music system, you put the speakers on the outside of the building facing outwards so everybody can hear that you have music. So, of course, you have 50 cafes around your monastery. It's a lot of sound. It's quite the cacophony. And one year, we had a travel agent set up shop right outside the monastery door. And it was a Tibetan travel agency because a lot of Tibetans staying there over the over the New Year. And it was announcing something in Tibetan, um, saying a few names of Indian towns where the buses were going, they're selling tickets for. And uh, the only English word they would say every three or four minutes was, "Hello, hello, 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 hello," getting people's attention. And then in Hindi and Tibetan, and then New Delhi, Bombay. Calcutta, Darjeeling, hello, hello, hello. This would go on, it was very loud, like really loud. Like They would start about 7, 8 in the morning, they would go till about 9, 10 at night. And there wasn't really many places to hide in this monastery, you, just, you could hear it everywhere. There was definitely some aversion flying around that meditation hall. And this was a 20-day retreat, so we we're on day two. And it's like, oh my god! <laughs> Fortunately, the Indian uh, electricity system isn't up to top standard, and um, the power goes out, you know, several hours a day, sometimes the whole day. So that was that was the great relief. We were like, thank you. <laughs> but it was a great place to practice with your aversion, because clearly we couldn't do anything, you know, unless we sabotage the restaurant and the travel agent. So we had to sit and work with sound and work with aversion. Wasn't what we went to India for, right? To listen to a travel agent for 20 days. And as happens often in India or in places where we have no control for, for a long period of time, the mind loses its kind of pumped up idea that it can control its environment, and it starts to let go and soften and surrender a little bit. And over time, uh, it beca- in a, because we were meditating, because we were trying to live this teaching, we began, you know, how I began anyway, to just notice it as sound, just to notice it as I would notice a bird song, as I would notice traffic. It's just hearing. And over a period of time, the reactivity actually dissolved. It just was just sound. It became kind of amusing. Hello, hello, hello. <laughs> you know. 
sometimes we didn't like it because it actually woke us up from our daydreams. You know, it's like, you know, here I am trying to have a long fantasy and this, hello, 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 keeps coming in. <laughs> so the mind has this wonderful capacity to adapt to any circumstance. You hear these accounts of people living in concentration camps and in prisons and uh, in, in kidnap situations. And the mind initially is in terror and fear and, and aversion and contraction. And it adjusts to whatever situation we're in. Have you noticed that? However difficult the situation is, to some degree the mind has this ability to, to expand and meet it. In our culture, the, the thing I think that's most hampering for us in our, in our life, in our practice, is when this aversion is turned inward towards ourselves to, and becomes self-hatred, self-criticism, self-judging, self-loathing, lack of self-acceptance, um, which is pretty uh, universal in the West. I know very few people who have escaped this burden of self-hatred for whatever reason that has arisen, which are many, many reasons. Most people are plagued with a sense of low esteem, perhaps, low self-confidence, or just a very subtle sense of unworthiness, a sense of not being quite right, uh, not being good enough. Anybody have that tape going, not good enough? not good enough at this, not good at that, or just period, just not good enough. Whatever you do, it's not good enough. And our thoughts are quite keen to remind us that whatever we do isn't quite good enough. Whatever this mind is, is that mind really who we are, that mind that keeps telling us we're not good enough? If we're choosing to identify with something, I don't think it's a great place to identify with. So when that self-hatred is manifesting as thoughts, as uh, self-judging, self-loathing, self-criticizing thoughts, see if we can just notice that that is just a form of aversion. Aversion is really a mind state. Grasping is a mind state. Anger is a mind state. They're states of mind conditioned usually by the past that come and go. They're not ultimately who we are. They're not permanent. So can we notice them as a mind state and not buy into it as the truth of who we are? Can we know when, it, when we're in the middle of a self-hating attack that it's going to pass? Because it does. Like everything, it passes. Can we work skillfully with that... Um, with those thoughts, with those self-critical thoughts, can we see them as just a thought, rather than giving them our authority, giving them a, a sense of objective truth? You know, the, when, when we're doing something, say we're going to an art class, um, you know, we're drawing something or making something, and the voice comes up, oh, that's pathetic. I mean, that's just, I mean, why bother? You know, we believe that thought, don't we, for the most part? Oh yeah, that's hopeless. Or we're writing something, or whatever we're doing. 
that self-critical thought, we believe it. That's where it gets its power, is our, is our believing in it. This is from the Buddha. When we are touched by a painful feeling, an unpleasant feeling, if we... Let me start this again. If one is touched by a painful feeling, if one then sorrows, grieves, laments, weeps, beats one's breast, and becomes distraught, then the underlying tendency to aversion still lies within us. O monks and nuns, that one shall here and now make an end of suffering without abandoning this tendency to aversion towards painful feeling, that is impossible. So he's saying it's impossible to be free of suffering if we don't let go of this tendency to always react with aversion to unpleasant experience. There's the famous um, stanzas by the third Zen patriarch that goes starts something like, gone. <laughs> Anybody remember the third Zen Patriarch? The great way is not difficult, thank you, for those who are not attached to their preferences. The great way, the spiritual path, awakening, is not difficult, or is difficult, for those who are attached to their reactions of liking and disliking. If we're still caught in being attached to our being attached to the way things are, being attached to uh, having only pleasant and avoiding all unpleasant will suffer. We have to learn a skillful way to relate to the unpleasant qualities in our lives. If we're always reacting to the unpleasant experience, whether it's in ourselves, any of the senses, hearing, unpleasant sounds, unpleasant sights, unpleasant smells, unpleasant feelings, if we're always reacting, if we can't find another way to be with those without reacting, we're their prisoner. Those unpleasant experiences imprison us because we're not free in our response to them. So the next time somebody's doing construction outside your house, which if you live anywhere like me, it's pretty much every day, there's always some kind of construction going on somewhere, jackhammering, bulldozers. If, we have, if we're unable to find a way to relate to that unpleasant sound without reactivity, we're going to suffer. This practice, this Vipassana practice, really helps us move towards this quality of equanimity. Where, we, where the mind is not moving and reacting to avoiding and running away and rejecting the unpleasant and running after and holding on to the pleasant. It's very simple, it's very small, it's very subtle, and yet it's all also our, the whole of our lives. So like I said last week in relationship to pleasant feeling, it's the same with unpleasant feeling. When something unpleasant happens, like somebody says something that's hurtful, 
or we have to have a conversation with somebody who we find quite threatening or challenging, like our boss, or we have to say something difficult to our partner or our children. Or somebody cuts us off on the freeway. Mm-hmm. Keep using that example. It happens. <laughs> or we hit traffic. Uh, or we go to the beach and the fog's in and we've only got a t-shirt. <laughs> and we react to the we react to the, the the event. We react to the person. We react to the fog. We react to the external stimulus. It's always useful to ask the question: What am I actually reacting to? Because we think we're reacting to the external thing. Well, this person's aggressive and loud and abusive, and he's unpleasant, and therefore I'm reacting to him. And he makes me angry or afraid. That may be true. There's a certain truth to that. And, but what's also true, and perhaps more true, is often we're reacting to the unpleasant feeling that that stimulus is triggering in us. So is it really that we have a problem with the fog, or is it really we have a problem with the unpleasantness that the coldness of the fog stimulates? Does that make sense? So everything unpleasant is stimulating unpleasant feeling, and it's really our relationship to our unpleasant feeling is where we, where we uh, usually can do with doing the work. Because if we can tolerate any degree of unpleasantness in our system, in our being, then we're less afraid of the external because we're not afraid of what it's going to stimulate in us. It's like when we sit in meditation we, and we talk about working with pain, physical pain, not because we're becoming masochistic samurai warriors, but because we're learning how to deal with painful sensations. Pain is part of being a human. The meditation is a great place to explore that. Painful sensations arise. We have our usual resistance, aversion, reactivity towards them. Can we tune into the unpleasant feeling tone and just learn how to tolerate that? Learn how to understand how we relate to that? Can we learn how to... um, be with a wave of unpleasant feeling, a wave of aversion, and see it come and go. You know, we often sit down and something arises in our meditation that we really don't want. You know, that we sit down and we remember the thing that we've, you know, we've, we've forgotten to do, right? Or the, or the physical pain comes back, the injuries, the, the aches and pains. Or the emotional pain comes back. We sit down and bang, there's that sadness that I felt yesterday when I was sitting, or last year, or the year before. And there's a feeling of sort of recoiling, oh no, that's not what I wanted to have in my meditation today. And yet when we stay steady with that, which we can, because, you know, especially here, because I'm ringing the bell and you have to stay quiet and you know, be good, um, we get a chance to see, oh, there's a wave of anger, fear, aversion, sadness, reactivity rises. And what happens? Well, it stays around, does its thing, and it passes away. And you didn't die. You know, you, you, you survived. And when we really see that and stay with that with awareness, it's like, oh, it seems like anything can arise in my experience, stay around for a while, and pass away, and 
it's okay on some level, on some fundamental level, when we're residing more as the awareness rather than the experience, um, there's a certain uh, equanimity that arises, which is really the, the seed of freedom. Equanimity really is the doorway to freedom in, in, the, exper- in the moment. I remember I was house-sitting some years ago in the valley, a very nice, comfortable house. And I was just uh, lying down in this very luxurious bed for a nap in the afternoon. And I just hit the very big, soft, fat down pillow and uh, was enjoying all of that pleasant sensation. And then the boy next door began to practice his bugle. <laughs> and he was he was practicing the national anthem, which you know. Well, anyway, he was doing that. <laughs> it's not what I envisaged for my afternoon nap. And I noticed a lot of unpleasant feeling. <laughs> but I was also pretty mindful at the time. Normally, or quite easily, it could have been a big. You know, excuse for a song and dance and a reaction, and but I was just aware. Oh, it's just unpleasant. Probably because I've been in India so much, and good training. It's like oh, unpleasant sound, unpleasant experience, and actually it didn't create any waves at all. Usually it's the waves and all the reactivity that would make it then hard to sleep. Right? It's not the sound. It's all the how dare he? Doesn't he know it's nap time? <laughs> and then I went to sleep, and it actually wasn't a problem. That that was because there was some mindfulness present. If there wasn't mindfulness present, it would have been a song and dance reaction. You know, going out, throwing rocks, who who knows? <laughs> There's the story of the man who was wrongly imprisoned a couple of decades. I've heard this story secondhand. And he was finally released. And one of the questions he was asked when he was released and he was enjoying his newfound freedom, and he was asked, uh, have you forgiven the prosecutors and the captors, the jailers, for all your time in prison? And he replied with a sort of adamant, well, no, no, I'm still very angry and upset about the whole thing. And the person asking the question said, well, they still have you captive. They still have you captive in your own mind. So we can carry around a lot of aversion, hatred, anger. Sometimes for decades, somebody hurt us, abandoned us, rejected us, whatever, in our lives, and we still feel a seed of anger and hurt and hatred. And they're absolutely fine. They've forgotten all about it. They may not even notice the thing in the first place. And we're still suffering. We hold, sometimes we hold on to our aversion, our sense of hurt and betrayal and anger. And who's suffering? We're the ones who are still suffering. <coughs> so working with aversion, the Buddha taught loving-kindness practice as one of the direct antidotes to the force of hatred. Where we, in a way, we're consciously replacing the feeling of hatred with 
the sentiment of loving-kindness, of care, of friendliness. Not in a way that's denying the, the aversion or hatred, not in a way that's suppressing that, but really just uh, using the wisdom that the mind can only have one thing in it at a time. And we have the, the mind also has the ability to incline itself towards something other than what is. So, say we have a person who we habitually find difficult. We can bring them into our loving-kindness, our meta-practice, and begin to incline the mind away from a habitual groove of disliking this person and reacting and being caught up in our story about why this person's bad, into just uh, expressing uh, a deep wish for their happiness, despite what may have happened in the past. It's a very powerful practice, for those of you who don't know the practice. It's very powerful in relationship to ourselves. If we're carrying around old um, feelings uh, of, of lack of self-acceptance, self-rejection, doing a loving-kindness practice towards ourselves over a period of time can really be transformational. I did this practice for years in my early, you know, when I first started practicing, I had a very strong self-critic and self-judge. And I found the practice really transformed that sense of self-hatred by, in some ways, replacing the messages that I used to tell myself and that I may have got told with a more genuine, present wish for myself. May I be happy? May I be healthy? May I be free from suffering? May I live with ease? It's not normally what we tell ourselves, is it? You know, may you work really hard and (laughs) succeed and stop doing that and not good enough, you know, suddenly say, oh, and and may you be happy. So every time you notice yourself beating yourself up, at the end of that you could just say, and may I be happy, or may I accept myself, (coughs) or may I be able to be with myself just as I am, or I'm okay just as I am. So you're somewhat neutralizing the force of that self-hatred. It's very effective. When we take any of the hindrances as the object of our attention in meditation, when we take uh, grasping or aversion as the focus in the moment, in that moment is no longer a hindrance. When we're suffusing anything with awareness, then we're no longer as caught in it or reactive in it. So, for instance, some pain arises in the meditation, and before we notice it, we're caught in contraction, the body's tightening, we're feeling a little sort of inward groan, like, oh God, not that again. And then then we still react to that. And then we become mindful, and it's like, oh, what I see is there's knee pain, and I notice I'm caught in in aversion and reaction. And then that aversion reaction becomes the focus of the meditation in that moment. In that moment, we're no longer caught in it as much. We're not acting out from it as much. It's actually being held in awareness. Then we start to transform the aversion. In a way, awareness is the fundamental... um, 
quality that transforms anything in our experience. When we suffuse anything with awareness, we uh, no longer, well, first we're no longer blind to it. We're less caught in the reactivity. There's more chance of a sense of choice, a sense of ease, sense of skillful action. So, it's 10.30, and um, that's a version. And I think that's all we have time for. Because um, I'd like there to be time for questions. Um, and I'll come back and talk about the other three hindrances another time. And if there's time at the end, maybe I'll talk a little about the hindrances, unless people would like to hear about them now. Otherwise, we can have a conversation about aversion. Please. I have a question about being around a person or people who have a tendency to constantly um, be in their own aversion about things. You know, it's sort of a, a constant litany about complaining. And um, I find that I have an aversion now being around that. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know how to transform it without just saying, you know, listen to yourself, but shut up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you, when you're with him, are you aware that you're in aversion? Or are you, are you, are you, are you caught in the aversion? Both. Both. Okay. That's a good distinction. Yeah. So are you aware of the unpleasant feeling? Mm-hmm. You are. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And sometimes not. Sometimes I'm um, just just aware of the aversion in the sense that I'm not caught up in it, but I'm um, you know I'm aware that it's happening. And other uh-huh. times I, I just get caught up. Uh-huh. Sure. There. Yeah. No. It's it's that's a challenging that's a challenging arena. Um, you know, the Buddha talked a lot about. Not this. This isn't the sole answer I'm going to give you, but the Buddha talked a lot about. Um, companionship with the wise, companionship with people who um, who aren't so lost in reactivity and anger and negativity. You know, the, the people who we surround ourselves with, sometimes we have choice about that, sometimes we don't, um, have, an, have a great effect on our mind. Um, he's, I was reading something yesterday where he said, um, you know, choose companionship with the wise, with those who are skillful and kind, and if there's nobody around with whom has those qualities, be like a lone tusker in the jungle. Walk alone, walk the path alone. He was very clear about the, um, the potential detrimental effect of being around people who uh, are lost in a lot of anger and negativity. So that's one piece. Um, sometimes they happen to be our partners, <laughs> or our kids, or our family, or our colleagues. And we don't have that degree of, you know, we can't just, okay, I'm going to be a tusker in the jungle. <clears throat> you know, I, in an ideal world, in an ideal situation, uh, you would be able to communicate something of that. Uh, communicate uh, the effect that that has on you. I notice when I'm around you and, and I hear you um, complaining or being reactive, it makes me really uncomfortable. 
I notice it, I notice it, it's, I have a, you know, and we can talk about what's happening for us in relationship to them, not saying that they should be different, but just what it stimulates in us. Some people have no idea of the effect they have on other people. And sometimes a little bit of information can be really helpful because people aren't aware. There's, there's, there is such a, um, you know, a kind of an acceptable cultural norm of bitching, moaning, gossiping, complaining, getting angry, that's sort of acceptable. And when we start developing new awareness, we see how um, unhealthy that is for the mind, for the heart. And so we have, we have, to, do, as you, we have to find ways to deal with that in our lives. Um, is this person of close... Oh, really? Uh-huh. Actually, yeah. And, and, yeah. Um, sometimes I, I can make that just part of the chatter going on or the noise mm-hmm. and not get caught up in it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then other times, you know, I, I just feel like I, I have to say something. And, mm-hmm. and um, so I'm, I'm just trying to deal with it in my own space. Right, right. Yeah, I think if, you, if, if you're going that way, then it's really staying present to the unpleasant feeling, staying present to your own reactivity. And I think there's a place for saying something, especially if it's a friend. They can probably handle it. Um, but saying it in a way that's, you know, as the Buddha said, truthful and useful. Um, saying what's true, but also what's useful. Saying it in a timely manner. communicating really what effect it's having on you is really what's important because you're not we're not about changing anybody else right yeah no please I don't know if this would be helpful, but one of the things that I do in a situation like that, um, especially if I know I'm before I'm going into that situation and that's what I'm going to encounter, is to do the metta. Mm-hmm. And um, and sometimes it's also to recognize when I've been there and what would I want for myself when I've been in those states, and to actually do you know um, specific individual thoughts of metta, of, of wishes of, um, that I would wish for myself when I've been in those states. And then to take it even beyond that person and have that metta be sent to all people who might be feeling that way or living their life in that way. Yeah. Yes. that people are questioning when they're actually complaining. But actually, a lot of the time, that what I hear is, why are things like this? What, what you know, your response to the blaring noise during the meditation is like, oh my God. They're overwhelmed. And I, I try to, like, if they're a vocal person or if they're an extrovert, they're going to talk. And I just try to feed them something like I understand or it's part of the 
or maybe you might want to try this book. Because I find a lot of times we don't encourage people into the spiritual world when we cut off. Like, I know it's torturous to be around that, you know, but also it's just it's hurting and they're asking for help. But somewhere in what I just said, maybe there's something. Because I find it's because this hope is so difficult to be be healthy and happy. Mm-hmm. So if we can leave them for something, they can well, I feel overwhelmed. I mean, I have I have to admit. I mean, I wrote a letter to somebody who just I just had to tell her finally. I'm only for like 30 years, but I just feel. I actually wrote that I feel like she took her fangs in and tried to get what she wants from me, and, and I had to tell her finally. So I'm, I'm in the middle here. <laughs> I understand. Okay. Um, something you said, and I'm not even sure if I heard it correctly, but you were talking about anger and not getting into the anger in response to um, disagreeing with people that are angry. And I wonder if my reaction was that um, I feel like it's really not good for me to avoid anger in myself, like to acknowledge it not that I have to direct it toward anybody, but um, there's always this uh, question I have about is anger okay for me to acknowledge? And um, it just seems like it gets bigger if I don't. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes I have to say to someone, I just get really angry when and um, sometimes I think I hear that it's not okay to be mm-hmm. in in the Buddhist world. You hear that? Well, I'm not. You know, I don't know if that's what I'm hearing or mm-hmm. if that's what's being said. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's no. It it there's different. You know, Buddhism's as different as. Buddhism is pretty diverse, so you get you hear different things from different people. And Asian Buddhism and Western Buddhism is also quite different. And certainly the relationship to anger is very different, East and West, culturally and uh, Buddhist-wise. So, um, certainly a lot of Asian Buddhist teachings, there's a great... Um, there's a great deal of caution around anger and uh, that it's not okay. Mm-hmm. That it's the seed of hatred and causes a lot of destruction, which it does, can do, if acted out on. But as you say, a lot of us in the West have had so many years of repressing a lot of stuff, including our anger, that anger's not okay, that part of our returning to a sense of healing and health is allowing these things which have been sown, 
because sitting on things clearly doesn't help either, nor does acting it out. You know, we've been through the the est and the primal scream and the <laughs> let it rip and let everybody else have it. You know, did that help? I don't think so. It caused a lot of pain. Nor did you know being back in Victorian England and stuffing it helped either. So, you know, hopefully on this path we're treading a middle way, and the middle way, as I see it, with anger is feeling it, allowing it to be there, noticing it giving it a lot of room in the body, in the mind, to be just known and felt, feeling without acting out. That's what I see as the middle way. You know, we generally have the two poles of repression, get it out. That's culturally what we do. Um, And from a Buddhist perspective, we're learning how to feel, be with it, and not act out in the moment with it, unless it's really appropriate, you know. When would that be? Um, I'm getting myself into dodgy water. Let me finish this first. <laughs> because what I do with it when it comes up and I, I notice it in me now is um, if I'm not really careful, I go to the judgment that I'm bad because I have it. Mm-hmm. If you allow it or you don't allow it? Well, I'm conscious, if I allow it, I'm conscious of then um, sometimes judging myself for it. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is just a judgment. You know, it could yeah. be a, what you've learned, could be a Buddhist judgment, you know, Buddhists don't get angry, you know. Um, if I don't allow it, it just seems like it's, it's permanent. Right. Yeah, it does. It'll just sit there until, it, you know, just sit there. Mm-hmm. Allowing things allow things to move through. Um, you know, anger is just an energy. It's just a, it's just a f- another energy movement in the body, just as a thought is, just as an emotion is. Um, it's not a problem. You know, we can get triggered into anger quite easily. Some of us, um, and we can get into rage, you know, narcissistic rage, and all kinds of different um, variations of anger. And I don't perceive them as a problem. It's just just another wave of the emotional body. And it's, but it's, you know, from a Buddhist perspective, um, we're learning how not to cause more suffering to ourselves or others. Acting it out usually causes suffering to self or others. When we're, when, we, when we're acting out, it means we've lost mindfulness. When we lose mindfulness, we're much more likely to create harm, especially if we're angry. We're likely to say something, do something, usually say something, or not say something, or not do something. So... If we repress it, it's unhealthy for us. Usually comes out as passive-aggressive. Um, so I just, yeah, I just encourage you to feel it, allow it. Um, finding p- safe places to express it, if that's appropriate. Go shout on top of a mountaintop, if that's appropriate. Please. I, 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 I encourage people not to comment on other people's questions or um, for the most part and not to offer advice um, and to really have the questions coming from what's arising within you. That was arising? It was arising. 
Okay, but to just, but I, I, it's just, it's just one of the guidelines we have in these kind of groups generally. I like to have is that we're not commenting on each other's experience. I'm just commenting for myself, actually. Okay. In going back to something that you mentioned with the Buddha, you had mentioned being with like people, being with people of the same temperament, involvement, whatever. Early on, it kept me from a lot of these people at a critical part of my life when I was much younger. I found a lot of people using. Yeah, and I had trouble with that as, you know, they're bumming me out, that's not as evolved as we are. And, you know, putting people in there, you know, I don't want to, you know, they're at another level. Mm-hmm. And when you mentioned that, and there's been a lot mentioned that I would love to know more about in a long period of time. And when you first started speaking, I felt a lot of it was towards the war energy, towards the hatred that's going on and the escalation of everything you see. But I look at the aversion with, and that's something that used to say, well, isn't that, you know, it's an aversion because people would finally go, you know, you bring them facts about the Vietnam War, about Afghan, whatever's going on. And it was, well, you're bumming me out, you know, and it's sort of like people that's uninvolved. I'm getting confused in what I'm trying to state. I guess my thing is, what I'm trying to say is I'm always been afraid of that, the elitist in only being with. Now, coming from what little I know of the Buddha, I understand there's much more to that statement, and much more teachings to it than just they're bumming me out, they're not as evolved, I'm on a much, because I see that in the new age. Right, so we're making a difference between um, reaction and wise action. So, um, some, when you're talking about they're bumming me out, they're, they're involved, to me that's reactivity. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily coming out of wisdom. Well, we're not talking about that. I mean, we're really, the the question is, um, I mean, that particular quote from the Buddha is really, a lot of the things that the Buddha talked about were really in relationship to um, forest-dwelling monastics who were doing intensive practice. Mm -hmm. So, we have to take a lot of those statements with with this kind of a pinch of salt in the sense that we're not doing that. We're living very multi-functioning, complex lives that we don't have. We don't not necessarily a need for that sense of um, preciousness. Let's say. But at the same time, we it's it's useful to ask that question: Are the places, and it's not just people; it's places, it's media, it's are the things that I'm doing in my life um, contributing to a sense of inner well-being? And if I'm choosing to be around people who are causing a lot of agitation, anger, restlessness, whatever, to, to ask, is, is, this a, is this a wise situation? Not to say that we go, oh, well, it's, it's not, so I'm going to leg it. You know, it may be that we work with that, or we may you know, deal with that issue in the relationship. Um, but it's just to keep that sense of uh, investigation of like, looking at our lives and are they supporting a movement towards wisdom, happiness, freedom, compassion. And for each person that's different. And it doesn't mean, I'm not suggesting that we suddenly closet ourselves away because you go to any monastery, it's exactly the same problem as you have in Fairfax. 
you know, talk to any monk or nun, there's no escape from anything. I think that's, that's what I was more like in a broad sense. I have seen so many people use that to sure. you know, their life. Right. Right. So we have to be really, you know, honest with ourselves. What are we, you know, what's our motivation? That it was brought up because I was thinking about just the anger. How do I feel about anger? I can remember you know, different situations where I've been angry in different ways and ways I acted out and I haven't. Um, I moved to this part of the world and uh, well, to California. And one of my first experiences here was I went to a a gathering on the beach. It was a um, a pagan, some sort of pagan ceremony celebrating. Uh, anyway, something occurred that really made me very angry. They had this open fire on the beach after um, this sort of ceremony where people were running and jumping over it as a part of a festive courage or something. And um, this one woman fell into the fire. She tripped on the ceiling and she fell straight mm-hmm. wow. and down her arm and was freaking out. At first, somebody mm-hmm. took her down to the ocean. I thought the salt water might have helped, mm-hmm. but that didn't help. And then eventually what I noticed was we were sitting away from it. There was a group of us sitting away from it. People were holding hands, and some people were doing this, running and jumping over the fire. And I noticed was that there was somebody taking care of it at first, but eventually people just started to move away from the situation and had to go and eat lunch. And maybe there was like one or two people that had decided to focus on this woman and do what needed to be done. And um, so they took her, they started taking her back to the car, I guess. And and then I noticed somebody ran away. And then right there, I noticed at one point she was standing there alone, shaking. And so I just dashed towards her and asked her if she wanted some help. And she said, yeah, I'm freaking out. And I looked over and I saw everybody sitting there. There were about 50 people sitting there having lunch, kind of oblivious. <laughs> and there was this woman freaking out. And and then the man came back. He's going to drive her to the hospital, I guess. And we ran together. And I'm just shaking as I'm thinking of this. The whole situation really freaked me out. We ran together to the car. Eventually, she got taken away. The woman was going into shock. And who were these spiritual people sitting around? having lunch, ignoring it somehow. So I was so shaken by it, I had to go for a walk afterwards after she was gone. And I didn't know what to do about it. So I started walking back to the group, and and I was walking towards the organizer. And I I said to her, you know, I thought that was really irresponsible what was happening. First of all, there's no first aid kit. You're having people jumping over open fires. There's no, you know, people weren't paying attention to what happened. I noticed afterwards nothing was mentioned of it in the ceremony and the closing. Um, it just really shocked me. And, I, and she was sort of like, well, you know, people are responsible for themselves and that And I just freaked out. I got so angry. I, but I felt it was, I, I felt it was the right thing. Like the, the quality of anger was sobering. And I just said, you know, if they're going to be doing this, we have to have first aid kits, we have to inform people about what happened, we have to 
I mean, just wake up, right? I mean, this is, this is an immediate thing that just happened. Somebody just got burned. You take care of it. So, I mean, that's all that people do, right? And then I was, I know, I was surrounded by all these women who were saying, we have a lot of anger. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, I just, I, I mean, I laughed out of it. I don't think I said anything mean. I mean, I said, yeah, I do actually at this moment. If you don't like it, turn your face away. What else can I at least feel angry, and it, I mean, it was, it was bizarre. It was a bizarre thing. Afterwards, somebody came up to me and said, you know, I think we are going to change the way in which we do this, and she's very angry. Um, but most of the people either ignored it or were angry at me for being angry. It was a very weird, very bizarre situation, and I was shaken up for the rest of the day. Because the whole set, the beginning of the ceremony had been so lovely, and I felt so connected to everybody, and um, it just felt like a real betrayal. And in that, in that situation, I felt that the anger was sober, even as I tell the story again, I feel a sense of the clarity of what I did was appropriate. And, um, so that's a situation for me in that anger is absolutely appropriate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like the anger um, led to wise action. So that's the answer to your question, Lady in Red. <laughs> I'm sorry she answered it. <laughs> You've already asked one. <laughs> Did you hear what I said? I, I don't understand what just happened. I'm sorry. Oh, I, I just said there was one one example where um, there was an appropriate channeling of that anger into, you know, usually it's when that's appropriate is it is, you know, generally we're saying don't act out of anger in the moment because usually it leads to sometimes in a way we just don't have a choice, you know. I was. Uh, I remember when uh, one of my teachers, Christopher Titmus, who some of you may know, has a certain passion around human rights, environmental concerns, etc. And is very passionate. And some people say he's very angry and righteous, has a lot of righteous anger. Um, that's their opinion. I remember once he was. We were in. Um, Bodhgaya and the Prime Minister of Sri Lanka had just arrived. They donated a million dollars, six million dollars, a million dollars, I think, to erect this gold fence around the Bodhi tree. Mm. The, the, the Bodhi tree is the, the tr- it's a descendant of the tree that the Buddha got enlightened under. So it's a very holy tree. It's a big temple site. It's a wonderful place. And um, they thought that it would be nice to have a sort of gold fence around it, as some somehow honoring the tree, which is sort of ironic because it looks like a prison around the tree. So you have this sort of juxtaposition of this prison structure around the tree, which is a symbol for awakening and freedom. And of course, then when you have gold pillars around a tree in India, 
this is the state which is the poorest state and the most crime-ridden state, and pretty lawless, you have to also have um, army stationed in the temple to protect, to protect the gold, because otherwise the, the dacoits will come along and nick it. And why not? You know, it's a, it's a poor state. Um, and so the prime minister came to town, there was big hoopla, and uh, when any prime minister comes to town, they usually end up bulldozing, I'd say, at least 100 dwellings, 100 chai shops, and people's lives are extremely devastated when some dignitary, because they, they, like like they like to sweep the streets, and people live on the streets there, so people's lives just get bulldozed off, off the face of the, the village. So, and Christopher's been teaching there for about 30 years and feels very passionate, very connected with the local villages. And um, the Prime Minister was walking through the town, surrounded by a lot of military, a lot of politicians, a lot of you know, the usual hoopla. Um, and being the passionate person that he is, he just walked right through the security, right through the army, walked right at the Prime Minister and said, you know, what the hell are you doing? Um, and... You could say that, you know, that might have looked like anger, um, but that, you know, he got to have direct contact with this, you know, with the Prime Minister and Christopher is somewhat a local dignitary in, in the area and they had a dialogue and, um, you know, we can always evaluate, evaluate whether that's appropriate or not appropriate, but there's some, there is a, there is, I guess, I guess the difference is, and it, 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 the difference is it always comes back to awareness. We can be really angry and really enraged. If someone's beating up a child, we can get really angry, and we can maintain awareness, and we can use that anger skillfully. So that's the difference. We can be very passionate and very angry and not lose mindfulness. You know, we can be. I remember being in a discussion recently. Somebody was telling me something about my behavior that I was very adamant wasn't true and got quite angry, and maintained that clarity of, that is not true. So, um, that's the difference. It's all about whether the, the quality of mindfulness. So, but it's a really fine line between staying mindful when we're passionately you know, fired up about something, and when we lose that awareness, because that, that anger and passion is very consuming, and it's easy to get identified with it and lose the clarity. So I guess that's the difference. And on that note, we have to wind down the discussion. Um, you, you had a list of something you wanted to mention. Do we have time for it? A list? Oh, well, the three other hindrances, um, restlessness, sloth and torpor and doubt, but I know nobody has those here, so we'll just pass on those. <laughs> <laughs> Next time, whenever Sylvia's away. So thank you for your attention. <laughs>